Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Where does history start and end? Are the 1990s too recent to count as history? Well, this is our podcast, so we make the rules. Welcome to The Rest is History, the podcast that refuses to be bound by convention. And today, we're looking back at the decade that gave us Oasis and Blur, Boris Yeltsin, the death of Yugoslavia, Monica Lewinsky, and Mr. Blobby. Tom Holland. Do you remember the 1990s? I mean, you must have been, what, 40? 45? <laughs> <laughs> the banter keeps, the banter keeps playing. It was, I, I was uh, in my twenties in the 1990s. So I, I remember bits of it. Yeah. And I think the best way to get into this, Dominic, since uh, yes. you, this is very much your field, um, is to, uh, is to start with a tweet from Thomas Jones, who asks, who says, my history teacher said that 50 years ago is history. Anything less is politics. Whatever the number, there must be a cutoff. And that's exciting because it, it might suggest that actually. <laughs> yeah. My career is over. You're not legitimate. Your entire <laughs> nah. career is over. Well, so, I mean, a lot of people but, have been saying that for years, to be fair. But I want to leave that that exciting possibility hanging, because All before right. we come to the 90s and that question, um, just a quick reprise to our last episode, which was uh, we gave our list of top 10 weird wars. And we've had quite um, quite a response to that. Um, this we have. Yeah, giving giving us um, some suggestions. Uh, so we have uh, three from uh, Stephen Clark. So we have the Flagstaff War, a scrap about a flagpole in which the Maori beat the British Empire. I assume you know all about that, Dominic. I, I know nothing about that. <laughs> <laughs> but you must know about the football war. This is Stephen's second suggestion. Yeah, so I didn't. A lot of people said to us, why didn't you pick the football war? El Salvador and Honduras fighting in 1969 after a World Cup qualifier. I mean, I think it's A, quite well known, and we had quite a lot of South American, sort of Latin American wars. Um, but it is a good, a good weird war. If you're going to do weird wars, the football war is a good one. What, what's, what's Clark's third one? Uh, the Star Wars. Uh, so that's not the films. Um, it's a series of main conflicts between 562 and 781. And again, you must know I that. Assume. Yeah, you know that <laughs> really like, well, do you, Tom? That's your period. Like the back of my hand. Again, I've never heard of that. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, we've got one from Dave Waters, who offers this priceless suggestion. The War of the Stray Dog in 1925, caused by the shooting of a border guard chasing a stray dog. Greece, Bulgaria, lasted 11 days. And then he has days. a great podcast, as per usual. So we so, very much like that suggestion. Uh, Jim Zhu has an even shorter one, the Anglo-Zanzibar War. He says, too short to make the list. Is it still a war if hostilities lasted the length of half a football match before stoppage time? So yes, this was a war that lasted about 45 minutes. And I think um, the British wanted to get rid of the ruler of Zanzibar. I can't remember the exact details, but basically, yes, it lasted less than a half of football. And I think British one sailor was injured. Uh, and we won, um, as we often won these sort of gunboat diplomacy. Back in those days, yeah. Uh, and then we've got two Irish ones. We've got one from Dominic. 
Sorry. No, I am Dominic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, I'm not sending... I should, I should start doing that, actually. Start sending questions to, to our podcast. <laughs> yes, a Dominic Sandbrook has written in with a ludicrous question. <laughs> what nonsense is this? It's not you, Dominic. It's Ian Winterton, who drew our attention to uh, the 1866 Irish invasion of Canada. I don't know anything about that. Uh, I'm going to look that one up. Um, and Eamon McGinty, uh, the Battle of Kuldremni, I hope I, I hope I pronounced that right, in around 555 AD in Ireland was started over a prayer book. St. Finian and St. Columba began the war after both claimed ownership of the Psalter. I mean, that's an excellent reason. There was a famous prayer book war, wasn't there? Scotland, 16, when is it, 1638, 1640 or whatever it is, uh, prayer book war then. And there's one from Sparkling Wine Charlie. He says he's slightly disappointed well, she's slightly disappointed that the Turbot War wasn't mentioned. Tom, I'm, I know you know all about the Turbot War. Is this? It's not Cod Wars, is it? <laughs> no, I don't know what it is. The you Cod don't know Wars. Either. I, I know about the Cod <laughs> Wars, but I, but I, um, I mean, we lost the Cod Wars, so I've kind of tried to blank it out. But the Turbot War is a mystery to me. <laughs> So basically, for anyone listening to this podcast for the first time, which yeah. it's a succession of, of tweets in which we show that we know nothing at all about anything. So not, not promising. I think I think that we should cut to the chase and go back to something that um, you at any rate do know about, which is um, uh, how you write contemporary history. Yeah, so the 90s. Just, just, yeah. yeah. So just to remind, we're, we're talking about the 90s and the, this tweet from Thomas Jones Um the history teacher who says that 50 years ago is history, anything less is politics. Are you a fraud, Dominic Sandbrook? <laughs> well, we talked about Mr. Blobby in the, in the uh, introduction. So Mr. Blobby definitely isn't politics. Um, you always get this when you're doing quite recent history. People say, mm, is it really history? I mean, I got this when I started my sort of series about post-war Britain, writing about the 50s, and people would say, oh, the 50s had in the 60s. How can that be history? Um A.J.P. Taylor wrote his History of Britain Between the Wars, which he called English History. (laughs) Great title. (laughs) So he published that in 1965. And he was right going up to the end of the Second World War. So you're talking, and that was in the Oxford History of England, I think. So that's sort of 20-year gap. And 20 to 30 years is, I would say, probably the norm. It's the point at which people start looking back. So when Lytton Strachey wrote his Eminent Victorians, what's that, 1920s? So again, yeah. about 20 to 30 years after. I think you then get a bit of a sense of perspective. Most of the actors have left the stage. Um, it feels like the day before yesterday. And so you can, there's a sense of looking back rather than looking around. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, all this must be utter nonsense to you as somebody who writes no. about the Romans and stuff. No, not at all, because um, to, the, to the Romans and to the Greeks, essentially, um, only people who had lived through the events that they were describing were qualified to be historians. So right, Thucydides is the yeah. classic example of that, that he was a general in the Peloponnesian War. So he felt that that was very much what qualified him to write about it. And basically, if you were writing about anything that you hadn't lived through, you were, you were a bit of a fraud. So what about Plutarch or somebody? Surely he's writing about... Yeah, he's, he's, he's not really rated. He's, right. He's, okay. You know, I mean, he's writing his biographies and things. To, yeah. To be cutting edge, you, it, so essentially, history for the, for the Greeks and the Romans was what you do. It's contemporary history. So you are absolutely the coeval with Thucydides, so as I've, I've always, always maintained. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but but I, I mean, what I've noticed with with your books, you, you begin in the fifties and you've gone right the way up to um, nineteen eighty three was the last nineteen eighty two really, isn't it? Yeah, eighty two is, is the last yeah. one. Is is that um, 
the 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 space of time that are covered in your books gets shorter and shorter. Yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. So it's almost like the closer you get, the more there is to write about. Is that the feeling? Is that how you... N- no, I think actually what it is, is the closer you get there, um, if I can be sort of self-flagellating for a moment, I think the closer you get, the, the, the harder it is to get a perspective about what matters, but also the temptation becomes greater to just immerse yourself in, um, in, in detail that the reader will recognise. So, you know, imagine writing the same sort of books about the Victorian age. I mean, most of it would just be meaningless to readers. They'd say this, this is a lot of sort of trivial and, and, um, insignificant fluff. You know, what was on at the music halls? Um, the big debate about some celebrities that we've never heard of. I, I think you can get away with that with, with very recent history because so many people pick up on all the references. You know, the sort of stuff in my yeah. last book, which was about the early eighties. The references to, you know, I don't know, um, sitcoms or to cricket matches or to, you know, football hooliganism outbreaks or whatever. Those yeah. mean something to readers now in a way that they will be utterly meaningless in the 25th century and, and nobody will care. Right. So it's interesting for me reading um, your most recent one, which is about the kind of the first Thatcher government, was that I, I kind of vaguely remembered the the, the broad outlines of the politics because I was I was. Um, what was I? I was 13 in 1981. So I was kind of starting to read newspapers and watch the news. But but you have whole sections on new romantics and smash hits. And so, of course, absolutely, I remember all that and the sitcoms and stuff. So it was very fresh. But if we go back to the the, the topic we're meant to be covering, yeah, the, 90s, the 90s, one, one of the issues surely must be with, with covering like that is that because you've kind of lived through it, the temptation is to yeah. assume that your experiences are somehow universal or but, yeah and, and they're not are they and your perspective no, I mean, that's somehow the, is privileged because you've lived through it so therefore you feel fresher to it but perhaps in a sense it becomes an impediment i i think it's a total impediment actually tom i think um i i notice this all the time giving talks about contemporary history is that people will say well, well actually i was there and i know that the 70s were not all grim that they were wonderful and then there'll be somebody else in the audience who will then pipe up and say, I worked for British Leyland in the 70s and it was bloody <laughs> awful. You know, and, and basically they just have an argument where they're brandishing their own individual experience and, and assuming yeah. that that's the norm. And I think that's exactly right. I think the 90s is an interesting one because I think that our memories of the 90s are not very conflicted as they are of the 80s or indeed the 60s and 70s. So because it was a time of you know economic stability, economic growth, because there was yeah, the Cold War had ended. It was a, there was a, a sort of feel-good factor in the 90s. So I guess if you got 100 people and asked them, you know, their memories of the 90s, certainly in Britain, and in, probably in America as well, um, they would tell a relatively similar story, don't you think? I think we don't argue about the meaning of the 90s. So, so I was in my, in my 20s during the 90s, and it was a great time to be in your 20s because... Yeah there were lots of enjoyable things to do. Um, and, and so, you know, ecstasy and Britpop and everything has a massively salient place in my memories. And so therefore, when I think about the nineties, that's tends to be what, what I think about. You think but about ecstasy. That, the, the, that's not the well, Tom Holland that people, uh, <laughs> I, I think about all the fun things there were to do. Right. If you were in your early twenties in the nineties, I will go no further, but it was, it was, a, you know, it was, fu- it was fun. So that's chiefly, 
you know, if I had a kind of synesthetic sense of the past, I think of the 80s as kind of slightly grey and grim and dire. And I think of the 90s as, you know, big smiley, yeah, <laughs> big smiley icon and sun and, you know, crop circles and just great. Um, but of course, you know, that's, is, is that accurate? Um, well, I think we forget that certainly in Britain, the 1990s, you can divide into the sort of, there are two governments, aren't there? The major governments and then the Blair government. The major government was exceedingly unpopular for most of its tenure. Um, there was a sense of sleaze and, you know, incompetence and, and whatnot. Um, and I think actually what's happened is the nineties, as these things, as often happen, the nineties have been taken over by a particular moment. A memory of the 1990s is colored by a particular moment, which is sort of 1996, 97. Um, for a lot of people, it's interesting in the tweets, a lot of people mention Euro 96 or, and the coming of Tony Blair and Cool Britannia. And that has sort of seeped out and become the meaning of the whole decade, certainly in Britain. Um, and I think now people are look, look back. I mean, it's interesting how memory, how sort of meanings of periods sort of change. Because now when people talk about the 1990s, I think there are two ways they talk about it. One is lost golden age, pre-crash, pre-COVID, pre-populism and Trump and blah, blah, blah. Um, or they see it as that's the moment where everything went wrong where we were complacent and hubristic and we sowed the seeds of all these sort of disasters to come. Don't you think? I think those are the two ways that people... I think, I mean, it's interesting because decades never exactly map onto the... No. The the precise numbers, do they? Um, No, not... So so the 80s begin in 1979, if you're British, begin in 1979 and and end um, with, with the fall of Thatcher... Or the um, end of the Cold War. I mean, so the eighties do work as a as a moment. The the nineties, I think, begin with the fall of the Cold, of of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. So they begin in nineteen eighty nine, and I think that they end in on nine eleven, two thousand and one. Yeah, I'd buy that. And I think that the memory is that this is a period where you're not haunted by the shadow of nuclear war, and you're not haunted by the shadow of terrorism and wars on terror and all that kind of stuff and so you look and and so for me i look back on it as a kind of period of of golden youth yes but of course that that, that's then colored by your own youth isn't it absolutely absolutely so then that that would be a problem for me i think if i was trying to write about it because i think that that sense would completely color it but 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 your great talent i mean is is always to pick up on the countervailing trends within society that go against the kind of the stereotype of a decade or a period. So, so go, you know, be, be contrarian, be contrarian about the 90s. It was terrible, whatever. If you were going to take a worldwide view of the 1990s, you could easily tell an incredibly bleak story. So it's the decade of Rwanda. It's the decade of the death of Yugoslavia, which I think actually for people of our generation um, was a very salutary and sobering tale. So you had a European country tearing itself apart. I mean, we did a podcast very early on in this series about civil wars. And that, for me, is always the civil war that I think of. You know, a country that I had taken for granted as a child. You know, Torval and Dean had won their gold medal there, um, ripping itself apart in the 1990s. And also, I think, a massive geopolitical story in Russia, which we don't think about as much as we should in the West. So the end of the Soviet Union and a country, a, a, a power, a really sort of a linchpin of the world system going into meltdown. You know, Russian men, their life expectancy dropped by the best part of 10 years in the early years of the 1990s. You know, an economy in complete meltdown. So you could tell quite a bleak story 
about the 90s. And you could also tell us, I mean, the, going back to the hubris point, you could argue that the defining book of the 90s in some ways is Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, um, which perhaps unfairly has been seen as this sort of blast of Cold War triumphalism. You know, we've won liberal democracies, the wave of the future, and that history as the clash of systems and as a clash of ideologies is going to come to a halt. It's over. I mean, that's to really um, bastardize his argument. But that seemed to capture some of the sort of complacency of the 90s. Do you think it's a complacent period, the 90s? Well, I, 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 I've talked about this before, but I remember going to the to Paris for the bicentennial of the French Revolution in 1989, oh, yeah. summer of 1989. Yeah. And there was this great kind of parade. And at the, at the opening sequence of it were, were Chinese dissidents on bicycles cycling through the streets of Paris, kind of making clenched fist signs against the backdrop of what had happened at Tiananmen Square. Mm. And I guess looking back, that's probably the most significant event is, yeah, I mean, is the sense that actually what, you know, far more important really than what's happening in Russia or, or indeed in America or anything is what's happening in China. And I wasn't really, really alert to that. Wasn't really alert to that. Much more important than, than the, the seeming tensions between um, Islam and the Western world, which was also clearly brewing in the 90s. Bin Laden is starting to kind yeah. of surface around that time. Uh, but really, it's China, isn't it? And I suppose the other thing, the other thing, of course, that that also I remember absolutely beginning, I I, I was at Oxford and uh, my wife-to-be was um, away for a year at Stanford. So, you know, deep trauma, writing letters, hilarious, writing letters. Yeah. And there was an American friend who had a kind of little, um, one of those early um, maps. Yeah. Um, and, and he told me about this thing called email. And I remember sending my first email on his uh, little Mac. And then gradually over the course of the decade, the, the the internet became more and more of a, a sequence. So again, we had another American friend who stayed with us. He was a brilliant guy. I mean, a, a quintessential nineties guy. He was he'd been in um, he'd been in the CIA. He'd come over to Oxford. He'd uh, done a degree. He'd become very involved in making corn circles. So I made my any corn circle with him. Uh, that was a kind of that was a, a great thing. Anyway, he was staying with us, and and he helped us to set up our first internet connection. Um, and I, I remember the first thing that he typed in was cheerleader. <laughs> so, oh, God. oh God! That was the very first thing that we ever looked up on. On big, and, and that's all so kind of nineties. Yeah. Um, but against the back, I also remember a lot of my reading was in kind of um, William Gibson and all that kind of stuff, and uh, the way that that what was happening had been prophesied. Yeah, there was a real sense. I think of, of technological change, wasn't there? Cultural change. I mean, I have exactly, basically exactly the same story. I had a, an American friend who was on a, a year's exchange from Stanford and he did, he had a computer in a box, which amazed me. I can, his first laptop I'd ever seen. He opened this device and he said, when I go back to Stanford at the end of the year, we can send each other messages. And I said, <laughs> that's, that's just, that's just some sort of obscure perversion. I'm not going to go to the college computer room and sit on my own in the dark typing in messages you know i'll write you a letter once every three years maybe if you're lucky but it um and it came very i think there was a very specific moment let's say 95 to 97 when people went from having no email address to being on email and having internet connections and obviously that when people write the history of the 1990s Obviously, they'll look at the end of the Cold War. They'll look at the opening up of China. They'll look at 
what happened in Russia, probably the development of the EU. But I think actually dwarfing all those things is something as big as the printing press, which is the development of this digital economy and this digital culture. I had a look the other day at my Amazon account to look for my first purchase. So that was 1999. I bought some of my Christmas presents for my family on Amazon in 1999. And I thought, God, how much money have I given to Jeff Bezos since Mm. then? And obviously that's a 1990s story that has had incalculable, you know, far greater effect than any British general election result or, or anything of that kind. Yeah, yes. And so in a sense, actually, the idea of the 90s as a kind of fire break between the grimness of the 80s and then the grimness of everything <laughs> that follows on from 2001 is illusory, then, you would argue. It's actually, it's the seedbed for a lot of the changes yeah. that have happened in the 20th. And in fact, you could say, has anything really changed? in the 21st century that wasn't implicit in the 1990s. That's true. That's a good way of putting it. I think in, you could argue in some ways, couldn't you, that the the following two decades were the playing out of forces that were already underway. I mean, if you went back to the mid-1990s, you'd find British politics dominated by arguments about Europe. You know, Americans were arguing about impeachment of a president um, and a culture war. I mean, culture. the idea of culture wars is a late 80s, early 90s American thing, the backlash against political correctness, um, sort of... Uh, the, the Republicans hatred of Bill Clinton and kind of conspiracy theories about Bill Clinton. I mean, all those things feel like there's a, there's a real resonance between what was happening then and what's happening now. And obviously Russia, Putin, China, rising Islam and the West. I mean, all those things are there in embryo, really. Right. One, one thing, of course, that's, that famously happens in, in the nineties is this, um, huge issue around who's going to become number one, Oasis or Blur. And this <laughs> yeah. is what, this is that's the thing. Important. That, you know, that's the important. Stuff. But, but you, but I, but playing, playing Dominic Sambro here. Yes. It is actually quite significant, isn't it? Because it's a national moment that revolves around the charts. And the last the one, charts the last, yeah. Kind of, it's, it's, it's the last one because from that point on, the charts and the streaming of music and everything, it all becomes so fragmented that the yeah. idea of a national moment around, you know, which band is going to be number one becomes inconceivable. So in a sense, the 90s is not just a, a, a beginning, it's also an end for that it's kind the, of absolutely. distinctive culture that had existed since, what, 1955 um, or something? Yeah, the, the, death of, the death of a collective national culture. And that's a story, not just a British story, but you see that story playing out in, in, in societies all over the world, don't you? So that Oasis Blur battle, which is actually a self-conscious attempt to replay the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones, yes. isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's, so it's, it's so, it is in itself very postmodern. It is itself. Yeah, absolutely. It's completely self-conscious. And there's a sort of, there are levels of, upon levels of kind of irony and self-knowledge. Um, but it is, it does feel now like, you know, it, that couldn't have happened in 2005 because by that point the charts had already fallen from you know from national prominence it was no longer part of the story um the other moment i think which is a shared national moment for british listeners which everyone will remember is the death of princess diana but maybe we should take a break first and then get into that um you know it's such a big topic um yes okay okay we'll come back uh, after the break and we will talk death of diana Support for this episode comes from the National Theatre. So, Tom, we are talking once again about the National Theatre's very own streaming platform, and it is called the National Theatre at Home. 
Yeah, it's a fantastic way to watch loads of brilliant theatre from the comfort of your sofa at home. There's no need to miss out just because a show has sold out or because you can't get a babysitter or because a trip to London is too far for one evening. And this month, Dominic, they are launching the Olivier award-winning musical The Little Big Things, an extraordinary true story about an ordinary family. When one moment changes everything, Henry's family are split between a past they no longer recognise and a future they could never foresee. It is based on the Sunday Times best-selling autobiography by Henry Fraser. It is a great new musical about the transformative power of family and how it is the little things that matter the most. Oh, Tom, it's so life-affirming, isn't it? You can subscribe now for only £9.99 a month. And to find out more, visit ntathome.com. That's ntathome.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back to The Rest is History, and a reminder that we're operating on double shifts at the moment during lockdown, so two episodes a week. And on Thursday, we have a rather more salacious offering, as Tom and I are joined by Hallie Rubenhold to talk about sex in the 18th and 19th centuries. Very not safe for work, that one, at least I hope. Now that uh, Tom's wiped the steam from his glasses, we can get back to the 1990s. So, Tom, we were going to talk about the death of Diana. Do you remember the death of... It's one of those moments, isn't it, where you remember where you were and what you were doing? I do. I remember it very well because we were moving house um, right. and we wanted some kind of cheery music to, you know, pep us up as we were shoveling chairs and things. And Candle in the wind. Just wall to wall, sombre <laughs> funerary music. Um, yeah. The whole, so the whole thing was, yes, very peculiar. And do you think the kind of thing that would, I mean, again, like like the, the Blow Oasis, a shared moment, I suppose it probably would, wouldn't it, actually? But it would be kind of bubbles of shared experience in a way that... Yes. I mean, imagine the tweets and imagine the, yes. I mean, I think the death of Diana is such a, it's also a sort of relief of mafficking kind of moment. I mean, British, Britain specializes in these sort of outpourings of Dickensian sentimentality, doesn't it? I mean, so did you do, did you do anything that you now feel embarrassed about? Do you know what? I was actually, I was in Bulgaria. I was, um, I was backpacking in Bulgaria and uh, a man at our youth hostel told us that Prince Diana died. We watched on TV and then, Extraordinary thing. We were in this tiny village in the, in the Balkan mountains and, um, people in the village all got out these wooden chairs from their, from their houses and they all gathered in the center in this square in front of this battered old kind of communist era telly. And they were all watching something on the telly and we were backpackers. So we didn't, you know, this is pre internet and they were watching the funeral. They were watching Elton John and George Carey and John Major and Tony Blair. Uh, in English, and they were—it was absolutely bizarre. And I remember thinking at the time, "Why? Who? Do, do they really care?" And they did. So it was an international care. event. Oh, it clearly well was in the mountains of Bulgaria. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was actually. I think obviously, would that happen now? Does British? Does the British royalty have this? I mean, probably it does because the crown. Um, yeah, maybe. So, maybe. Well, I mean, on the topic of um, people actually gathering around a television. 
Yeah. I mean, how retro is that? Uh, comment from um, P. O'Connell. Uh, I look back now to my own life in the 90s, he says, and I think it would have been entirely different with access to a smartphone. So that kind of follows up what, really what we're talking about, that technology yeah. perhaps is the greatest agent of transformation of, of anything. Yes. I mean, the elimination of distance, I suppose. Um, I, London, for example, again, this is a very sort of Anglo-centric way to, to think of it maybe, but London in the early 1990s it feels like a very different city from what it is today, much less multicultural, much less international, I would say. And I think things like technology and international travel and the sort of sense of just the sense of flux and the sense of the, the, the pos- of possibility is so much greater now um, than it was than it was in the 90s. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't from London. And I, I remember the, even going to London, you know, having to get a map and all this kind of carry on. That sort of sense of having the world in your pocket embodied in your smartphone was utterly absent. I, mean, there was this, I think it was last, maybe last, last year, the year before. Um, and it was um, uh, a, a program about Jeremy Deller, the great artist. Yeah. Um, taking a series of films about kind of rave culture and about the convoys going around England uh, and showing it to a class of school children in London and all of them watching it in, in a, a absolute incomprehension. It was a completely <laughs> alien world to them. Yeah. Um, partly because everybody in the, in the films that, that Della was showing were white. Whereas that wasn't the case in the, in the classroom in London. And that right. was a kind of indication of, of the, the kind of demographic change, I guess, that has happened since the 90s. So that is a, another yeah. aspect of, of what's happened. Um, on which point, Mac Matthew Matha, I don't know how you pronounce that, I apologise to him or her. Uh, why does the cultural gap between now and 1990 not feel as great as that of 1960 to 1990? Is it the Cold War? Or is it just me, the author born in the 90s? I mean, I think that is an interesting, really That's interesting point. And, yeah. and you would push it kind of to the 19, maybe even 97 with perhaps? Um, I mean, the cultural gap, I suppose. I mean, does it feel like there's a cultural gap between now and the 1990s? Not a massive cultural gap, is there? I mean, whereas you're right, he, Mac or he or she is absolutely right that the gap between 1960 and 1990 feels colossal. Um, and I guess it felt colossal at the time, didn't it? Which sort of just... Just uh, explodes the entire thesis of my series of books, which is that um, nothing <laughs> changed in the sixties and seventies. But of course, something did. I guess something did change, particularly in the I think seventies and eighties as um, social change accelerated. But you're right. I mean, we are. You can do all these sort of. We are. You know, the Sex Pistols are closer to George Formby than they are to us, or something. Uh, you can do all these sort of little little quirks to show. Um, how periods and some periods in history are close together or further apart than you think. And the 1990s do feel quite close to us in a way that they didn't feel close to the 50s or to the, or to the 60s. I mean, I suppose the two massive, massive changes between 1990 and, and so, so the world before 1990 and the world after 1990 is the technological one and, and the end of the Cold War. So the end of the Cold War completely recalibrates the geopolitical circumstances. Yeah. It, 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 transfigures the way in which people understand how the world relates. It opens the door for the rise of China. It affects the evolution of the European Union. It changes, you know, America becomes a kind of hyperpower and then kind of plummets. So all these kind of changes are, are implicit in that, but they're, they're recognisably bred of 
the, yeah. the, the kind of the collapse of the, of the Cold War. Um, Although that's a very anomalous moment, Tom. I think that's a very anomalous moment, the collapse of the Cold War, because actually ne- the world we're in now is arguably more similar to the pre-1990 world geopolitically than to the... So you've got two powers now. Um, America's no longer a hyperpower. But they've changed. Yeah, they've changed. China has eclipsed Russia. I mean, but Russia... And so for Europeans, we're, we're no longer central. In the Cold War, we were the, the battleground. I mean, it wasn't a very pleasant position to be, but we, we mattered. Whereas now yes. it's America and China and, and Europe's a, a bit of a backwater. So that's, that, that is a kind of sobering change. Um, yes, although perhaps. Europe probably mattered. Uh, well, it was, as you say, a battleground. We, I mean, we're a battleground over which others fought rather than a, one with a great deal of agency in ourselves. I mean, that's one reason why people wanted to set up the European Union in the first place was they felt that Britain, that Europe had become, Europe was, didn't, they didn't want to just be this sort of passive arena over which rival superpowers fought. But that's kind of our, Europe's position now, I think is a sort of slightly passive arena. I mean, when, you know, the Europe is no, not necessarily weaker now than it was in the fifties and sixties, because I don't think it was actually particularly strong back then. Anyway. Anyway, well, whatever. Yeah, and then, uh, technology. So we, we, which we've already discussed on, but that really is a kind of huge change. Yeah, Nicholas Rogers says, was it was the nineties a time when things felt just right, technology exciting rather than a ubiquitous grind, loads of originality and culture, sensible politics, end of the Cold War. Well, we've sort of alluded to this. I mean, you can tell that story and say, yes, technology was terribly exciting. Yes, everything felt right and rosy. But you can equally tell that story and say, actually, the it's not the seeds of future problems were sowed in the 1990s and you couldn't have, you know, there's sometimes people say of a particular period, well, is that when things went wrong, when we got things wrong? But the idea that we could get things right and fix it is an illusion. Things were always going to go wrong because that's the nature of history. Well, on which topic again, <laughs> question from William Ritchie. Is it reasonable to see Blair and 97 as the resolution of the UK's 20th century, the end of hereditary peers, Hong Kong return, devolution, Good Friday agreement, or was it papering over the cracks? Papering over the cracks. Um, I, I wouldn't go with papering over the cracks because I think that's sort of that. The implication of that question is there are deep problems that then became apparent. But I mean, all societies have problems. That's the nature of being a society. Um, I think, I think clearly the Blair government was able to resolve things, partly because a lot of the heavy lifting, I mean, I would argue had been sort of done already and a lot of sort of economic battles seemed to be settled. So they could then put their energies into Northern Ireland and all this sort of stuff. Um, but were they papering over the cracks? I mean, I don't believe the UK is actually more cracked than other nations. Do you, Tom? Um, well, I, I, I loved Blair. <laughs> that's a great, that's a I great was, admission. <laughs> I know. I, I was so happy, uh, when he was elected. And I, I'm sure, you know, the, there was a kind of feeling that politics wasn't something to worry about and everything was going yeah. to be great. And I just kind of put, put my, um, my kind of, uh, political gear stick into neutral and coasted along and thought about other things. But of course, all kinds of things were, were, <laughs> <laughs> creeping up through the undergrowth. Isn't it an interesting thing with, with Blair, though, Tom, that, um, you know, he he left office in 2007 and people applauded him out of the House of Commons. He had a standing ovation from both sides of the House. I can still see David Cameron kind of encouraging all his Tory MPs to stand and applaud Blair. Blair left at the height of his powers 
And now it is Blair who sort of struggles to show his face in public because people will shout at him. Whereas John Major, his much yes. lampooned predecessor, if people see John Major <laughs> in the street, they say, oh, it's John Major. Nice to see him. He wasn't so bad. You know, isn't that extraordinary? The reversal in fortunes. Except people never hated Major, did they? No, they I mean, didn't. It was never, there was the sense of division. that You never had that. No. I mean, people kind of mildly contemptuous of him. He, you know, he tucked <laughs> yeah. his shirt into his underpants and cone hotlines and things. Yeah. But, but but nobody hated him. No, not at all. And, and actually, it, the great thing for him is that the more that Tony Blair has sort of remained in the public eye, the more John Major's stock has risen. So they're, so, they're, they're sort of yoked well, together. Yeah, I, 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 Tony, I feel like kind of Odysseus listening to the sirens. I, I know it's bad, but... <laughs> Whenever I hear Tony Blair, I always go, yeah, he's so right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> need to be chained to the mast. Um, Stuart E. Mook, great name. Yeah. What effect has the 90s drug culture had on today? Now, Dominic, I know you're a great one for saying that, that drug culture has had no effect on anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think people had a different, slightly different attitude to drugs in the 90s, didn't they? There was still, the 90s, the 90s, I would say, felt a little bit like a, Certainly among people of sort of our generation, the drugs were, they were, you know, purely recreational, cool, um, almost harmless, actually. That was the sort of assumption, I think, among people in their 20s. And I don't think people talked about drugs with, with the, I mean, now people talk about drugs with much greater, I would say, foreboding than the, though it'd be interesting to compare that then with the stats and to see how, Popular there, and also how the class base has changed with drugs. I mean, I think the um, the, the way in which suddenly you had um, football hooligans hugging each other, yeah, on the floor of the hacienda and all that kind of thing, it, as a kind of folk myth, it's up there with the summer of love of nineteen sixty-seven. Yeah, um, that it it as a myth, perhaps it continues to have an impact. I think because I think the whole idea of the ecstasy culture. Um, you know, we can all just love one another. And so many people did experience that, even if it was a kind of chemically induced, that actually all you need is love. And I think that um, people of our generation are, are still bear the stamp of that, I think. I think that there is a kind of yeah. slight, well, why can't we all just love each other and be friends? That ironically <laughs> breeds all kinds <laughs> of vituperation and, and kind of moral righteousness. But I think, but I think the, the, you know, be kind is, yeah. I mean, it's always a terrifying, menacing kind of thing when you, you know you see it on a Twitter thread or something. Why oh, can't people God. just be kind? When people say that, they they mean it in the most they mean it in the most vitriolic way. Yes. Usually, yes. <laughs> but 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 I think the, the kind of the ideal of you know of kindness, of love, of everyone just hugging each other and, and not kind of kicking each other in or whatever is as a myth. It does kind of have a, a, a kind yeah. of enduring resonance. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, I'll, well, I'll leave my son to, does something at school that he refers to as kindness studies. And it's surely only, oh, well, it's, well, it's surely only a matter of time before that becomes a degree. Anyway, um, that's, that's should... all the influence of, of rave culture. Okay, this is a great question from Nicholas. Again, I hope I've pronounced this right. Juan, Juan, Joanne. Um, were the 1990s the last decade of uncritical Americanism on screen, and indeed perhaps beyond screen? Films like yeah. Independence Day, The Patriot, Armageddon, or even Saving Private Ryan seem unthinkable in the way they picture the US nowadays. Um, I totally agree with that. Touch. That's a really good observation. Do you, I, I think that is true. I think there was a America, you know, it had its issues, but it, it clearly there was a sense that Hollywood projected that 
they had, in inverted commas, won the Cold War. It was always presented that way. It wasn't presented as a, as a matter of kind of Gorbachev's reforms going wrong and the Soviet Union falling apart. And there was this quite uncritical sense. I, I saw Saving Private Ryan in a cinema in America, and I can remember the scene. They've got a colossal American flag flying at one point. The shot is of this American flag. And, I mean, there were people sobbing in the auditorium around me, and I just sat there. I've never felt so British in my life. Just this, like... <laughs> I just wanted to leave. I just wanted to leave the cinema, to be honest. I'm just so churlish and nasty as a person. Um, well, and Saving Private Ryan famously featured the British war effort, didn't it? Yeah, well, of course. I, I think, yes. And I think that's actually a really interesting story. The last few years is the collapse of America as this sort of idealistic model in yes. their own minds, actually, as well as, as well as in ours. You know, you see American politicians breast beating about the fact that they're being mocked elsewhere in the world or they're being seen as a, as a, as a sort of, a model of what to avoid. And I think that would have been unthinkable back in the 1990s. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting that both of us talking about, you know, remembering how we got connected to the internet, both of us have a link to Stanford. Both of us had American friends who yeah. helped to set it up. I mean, but essentially we, we felt like a kind of primitives. Absolutely. <laughs> America was, <laughs> America was, was the future. Whereas now I think we go to America often. It's, it, it's certainly in terms of its infrastructure and even in terms of its kind of, you know, the, the, the phones and things, it seems. Yeah, I completely agree, Tom. I totally agree. I think that's a bit... Retro. I first went to America in the 90s and was struck by the modernity of it. I mean, they had things that we didn't have. And I also... Even just tiny, piffling little things that were somehow symbolic. So I can remember going and they're having films that I had that had not come out in Europe, but I'd never even heard of. You know, they're, because they're, their film schedule was always ahead of ours. Yeah, um, yeah. And then going back home and saying to people, oh, there's a new... Arnold Schwarzenegger film or whatever, you won't have heard of it, but I've seen it in America. And that sense of them literally being ahead, technologically, culturally, that has gone, hasn't it? The internet has destroyed that, but also there's a sense that America has failed to kick on after 1989, 1990. Also, I, <laughs> my, I think my favourite series of the 90s was The X-Files, I, which I, I loved because it was, it was kind of engagingly paranoid, it, you know, yeah. you could watch it and enjoy it, and it was clearly nonsense. Um, but the kind of the vague hint that perhaps there were aliens in Roswell or whatever. Whereas now all of that has become completely terrifying. I mean, essentially, the X Files has become QAnon, and it's not <laughs> yeah. it's not fun. It's not fun at all. Um, on the topic of uh, weird stuff that people believe, uh, question from Steve HP, wonderful man. Um, the history of the 1990s was affected in important ways by Pope St. John Paul II, the Islamic Republic of Iran, Osama bin Laden, the destruction of the Aja Mosque and the soft power of the Dalai Lama. Are Western historians, you, Dominic, equipped mm. with a conceptual framework to explain this? I've got a great conceptual framework, actually. You don't need to worry about my conceptual <laughs> framework, Tom. Um, so this is, a, I guess, I'm guessing a question about religion, really. It's a question about... Yes, you know, I think it's... And, and, and not and specifically institutional religion. So not yeah. the kind of... Um, alien x-files kind of yes. spiritual but not religious stuff that you get in the 90s but organized so it's an interesting thing isn't it because the 1990s felt like a kind of get death like death of god period um the sort of fukuyama book and the idea that sort of humanistic liberal democracy was the future and that i, I definitely remember um sort of putting my purely sort of personal memory hat back on um, the way that people talked about Iran and the Ayatollah and the Rushdie fatwa and whatnot, that these were relics. These were soon to be forgotten kind of relics. People would often say it's medieval sort of behavior. And they would talk about Iran as a medieval regime and all. And people did that a lot actually after 9-11 as well. 
And it's clear now that people, particularly in the sort of secular West, underestimated the resilience of religion and the way in which religious identity and religious loyalty would play a part, particularly in the post-Cold War world. And I actually hate this question because it's such a gift to you. It is, um, because I, I, had, uh, I had no interest in this question at all in the 90s. I mean, I, it was nothing to me. I barely registered on my radar. Whereas now, of course, I have realised that that was completely wrong. And um, I've written a book about it called Dominion, which is available from all good bookshops. <laughs> and on Shameless. that... I only agreed to this topic because I yeah, so <laughs> I can see that that question will come up. <laughs> I think we should um, draw a line. I mean, let's see how we can top that. Okay. Well, I think you should give, give me one. Is the one moment from the 1990s that you think we don't talk about that we should talk about more that you think historians will look at? Is there anything unexpected? You can't ask me that question. I, I, I feel too tired after. Great, whatever great. It is, 40 after minutes. Your plug, I, but, after your but clearly, your you do. So I, tell me, what is the moment? What, you clearly have an answer to this question. Um, I think actually, probably Britain not joining the euro from a British. Oh, very perspective. good. Yes, very good. Um, I think not joining the euro was so. We did Brexit before, and uh, I think we've both, we've both read the book by Robert Toombs about um, yeah. who's a big Brexiteer, Professor Robert Toombs about Brexit. He makes the argument that Brexit would not have been possible had we joined the euro. And I think he's right because the economic damage of crashing out of the euro would just be so great. And that was actually Gordon. I mean, that will probably go down as Gordon Brown's, apart from as he would himself put it, saving the world in 2008 after the crash. Gordon Brown's great contribution to British history. I mean, great as in as in important rather than as a term of um, approval. Uh, by not joining the euro, that made Brexit possible in a way that... Or would you say inevitable? Uh, well, Toomes would say inevitable. Um, uh, but that's a, well, that's a massive question. Was Brexit inevitable? Um, surely there's a podcast in that. Uh, yes, we must get Helen Thompson. Yeah. We, anyway, we're just having. Her, 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 she's she's brilliant on this topic. We're now we, sharing we, our we're now sharing our backstage conversations with the audience, and we should stop. Yes. So I think that's it. I think we declare the nineties over. Um, please join us next time as we head back and take a good look at sex in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.